Well, the Lord is answering our prayers, isn't he? It is raining and raining and raining and raining and raining. The Lord is good. As we turn to 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, uh, we have a great passage of hope here for us. So I want us to really get a hold of it this morning, and by God's grace, he'll help us to do that. The title of my message is, The Victory is Won. And we see in this very first passage that Cody preached last week, the fact that we are children of God, and so we are. Let that sink in. We are his children. His work has accomplished something. It has accomplished the goal for which he came. And he tells us that we're his children, that we're loved by him, and that one day when he appears, we will be just like him. Isn't that amazing? And then he goes into how we handle sin. But notice what he prefaces it with, the victory that's already been won, that we're already his children, that he will come and make us just like himself. This is just what Paul did. Paul, remember in in Colossians chapter 3, he says, set your mind on things above, for Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For your life is hidden with God. He died and you died. He rose and you rose. He's coming and you will be resurrected. So he always starts with victory, and then he says, put to death this, and 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 put to death this. But it's always based upon, first, the victory that we have. Because it's out of the victory that we go forward to conquer. Always, as we will see toward the end of this passage. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler... In 1939, seeing the storms of war coming, in a sermon he preached, said this, when dark hours and when the darkest hour comes over us, then we want to hear the voice of Jesus Christ calling in our ear, victory is won. Death is swallowed up in victory. Take comfort and may God grant that then we will be able to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. It is in this faith that we want to live and die. And obviously, Germany went through a horrendous time with with Hitler and with the challenges that were there. And actually, Bonhoeffer was killed just before the end of our war with Germany. Uh, But he held the faith, he held firm to the end, he was resisting the evil that was there, Uh, he stood in in the breach. This passage in 1 John 3, 4 through 10, carries this main idea. Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and sin is the work of the devil, Christians do not and cannot live in sin. Let me say it one more time. Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and sin is the work of the devil, Christians do not and cannot live in sin. 
This passage is very confusing if we don't understand the verb tenses, and so we will get to that at a point here. Now, in this passage, we have 4 through 7, and we have 8 through 10, and they're really parallel passages. So let's look at the parallelisms there. In verse 4, we read, sin is serious because it's a rebellion against God. In verse 8, the parallel to that is sin is serious because it originates with the devil. The next parallel comes with verse 5 and verse 8, the other half of verse 8. Sin is opposed to Christ's appearing to take away sins. That's in verse 5. And in verse 8b, sin is opposed to Christ's appearing to destroy the works of the devil. Notice that appearing to take away sin is the same thing as destroying the works of the devil in the mind of John. That's his purpose, is destroy Satan's work. The third parallelism is verse 6 and verse 9. Verse 6, a true child of God does not live in sin. Verse 9, a true child of God cannot live in sin. Notice it goes from does not to cannot, is not able to. And then the last parallelism is verse 7 and verse 10. A true child of God practices righteousness, it says in verse 7. In verse 10, it says a true child of God practices righteousness and love. And in verse 10, he is beginning to segue into the next section about the importance of love in the believer's life. The first point of our message today is that sin is serious. And we need to say that because the culture we live in says sin is not serious. Sin does not matter. Living together is not a problem. Redefining marriage is not a problem. Redefining my gender is not a problem. Adopting children into alternate lifestyle families is not a problem. Lying, stealing, cheating, murder are mistakes that people make, but it's not serious because we've lost the fear of God in a large part in our country. So sin is serious, first of all, because it is rebellion against God. Chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sin, of sinning, also practices lawlessness. This practice of sinning is a present tense verb, which carries the idea of continuous action or habitual action. Is also practicing lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion. We're not asking people to repent of mistakes they've made or accidents that have happened. We're asking them to repent, repent of open rebellion against God. Tabidi says, sin is nothing less than personal treason against the sovereign of the universe. All of us here need to get reoriented, recalibrated in how we view sin because we're swimming in a culture in which it's not, it's not seen as relevant. And John 
in his blunt black and white self lays it out as clear as he can. That sin is rebellion, sin is lawlessness. J.C. Ryle says, a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. If a man does not realize the dangerous nature of his soul's disease, you cannot wonder if he is content with false or imperfect remedies. The only way a person truly gets saved is they really understand the gravity and seriousness of sin. And the only one who's able to really bring that to bear upon the human heart is the Holy Spirit. No matter how persuasive you are, no matter how articulate you are, we're not able to drive that truth home like the Holy Spirit. And we need to understand that to take the salvation God's given us and run with it and win in victory over sin. It is the root of all saving Christianity. So for a person to be saved, they must understand the seriousness of their sin. That they're not just making mistakes, they're in rebellion against the sovereign God who is holy and perfect and good. It's also important for us as we proclaim the gospel to be able to articulate the fact of what sin really is. That it is rebellion against God. It is lawlessness against him. Probably a year and a half ago, I had a little um, sore on my face. And being the typical stubborn man that I am, uh, my wife's going, you need to go get that checked out. And I'm like, oh, it's okay, it's just a little sore, I'll put some stuff on it, it'll be all right. It kept staying there. I kept, it wasn't that serious a situation. So she finally got an appointment set for me, so I kind of have to go because I make an appointment, right? So you, you show up there, and the guy looks at you, you say, okay, you're going to look at it, it's good to go, I'm ready to go, right? Oh, no, this is, he said, skin, he, he said two words, <clears throat> skin cancer. <clears throat> I didn't hear the first word, I heard the second one real clear. All of a sudden, I heard the word cancer, it got serious. Real fast. And fortunately, it was, just a, it was just a surface cancer that was easily removed. A lot of us are that way with sin. Sin is not that serious. And we're not really that committed to rooting it out of our lives. But, skin, but sin is a cancer that Jesus came to destroy. Jesus thought it was serious enough that he laid his life down to destroy it. In Hebrews, we're told we have not yet struggled against sin to the point of shedding our blood. Guess who did? Jesus Christ shed his blood that sin might be removed from us. Satan's strategy is obviously to minimize sin which exalts man and brings the holiness of God down. Do we really need a radical solution like the atonement of Christ to remedy our sin problem? The the world really asks that question, don't they? Why did Jesus die? For for my sin? I mean, I'm a pretty good person, and I try not to hurt anyone. 
People really don't understand the seriousness of sin. The scripture does, though, and we need to be careful as we articulate to people the seriousness of it. So it's serious, first and foremost, because it's rebelling against God. Secondly, it's serious because it's totally opposed to Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission is to eradicate sin, to destroy it. Verse, in John 1, verse 29, remember John saw Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What was Jesus' mission? To take away the sin of the world. When he comes to save you, he comes to forgive you of your sin and begin the eradication process of removing that sin from your life. And we've already talked over and over again the fact that that will never be complete until he comes Nevertheless, it's a process that we enter into. For us to live in habitual sin is like drilling holes in the gospel ship while Christ is seeking to save those drowning in the sea of sin. Jesus didn't just come so that you could be forgiven. That for sure was necessary. But he came and his ultimate purpose is to eradicate sin in our lives. That is his passion. We see that in the passage here. It says here, you know that he appeared to take away, this is verse 5, take away sins. And in him there is no sin. He has never sinned. He never did sin when he was here, and he never will sin. And he is saving a people in which it's going to be the same thing's going to be true of them one day. Praise God. We look forward to that day. So it's totally opposed to the mission of God. You see, we have a problem in, and I'm not sure if it's just the American church, but we had this doctrine, this false doctrine kind of come across the screen that says, in an attempt to bring more people into the church, is that you don't have to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. You can just trust Jesus as Savior. Now, so we create a two-tiered approach to Christianity. We have the radical Christians who do what the Bible says and follow hard after Jesus and read their Bible and pray and try to help other people come to Jesus and they're, th and they're trying to put off sin as much as they can. And then we have the second-tier Christians who were just wanting the life insurance policy. And they trust Jesus as Savior so that when they die, they won't go to hell. But he's not Lord, and they can still enjoy their sin. And hopefully one day they will eventually evolve into a Christian that is radical and hates sin. May I say to you, the Apostle John had no idea of that concept. The scripture has no idea of this concept. Jesus doesn't come begging and pleading for you to be his savior and not deal with your sin. It clearly tells us here 
that he appeared to take away sin. That is his passion. And what's amazing is he loves us who do sin, but his goal is to clean us up and make us like himself. Isn't that incredible news? And he's incredibly patient with us. But there is no one who's a believer who just trusts Jesus as Savior and will not obey him. Lack of obedience is what? Rebellion. It is lawlessness. Jesus doesn't save the rebellious and the lawless unless they repent and and strive to move away from being rebellious and lawless toward him. We all were rebellious and lawless, weren't we? And when he came to us in grace, we were willing, as imperfectly as we are, to put that off and to strive toward him. So sin is totally opposed to Jesus' mission. It's rebellion against God. And third, sin originates with the devil. 3 verses 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. In other words, the devil is his father. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Very clear mission statement, wasn't it? To destroy the works of the devil. Those who practice sin are the devil. The bad news for all of us is we were born with a bad father. We were born with Satan as our father. We were children of wrath, Ephesians 2 tells us. Yet God in his mercy, being little rebels just like Satan, he reached out and rescued us and saved us by his grace. There are only two families in the world. One has God as her father. The other family has Satan as her father. And there's all kinds of labels for the ones who have Satan as their father. But make, make no mistake about it. In this passage, John only sees two groups of people. Those who practice righteousness. Those who practice rebellion. Okay. Notice the devil has been busy sinning from the beginning. He was the author of sin. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, we see a a prophecy about the king of Babylon. But most Bible scholars believe this also is a reference to Satan. And I want you to look at the I wills that we see in this passage. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning... Son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will 
ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. Satan was the author of sin. He desired to be like God. And in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, all of us inherited that same satanic nature that we want to be like God. Not in submission to God, not in obedience to God, not in worship of God, but we want to be our own gods in control of our own decisions. And who cares if it's sin or not sin as long as I live my life the way I want to live it. Spurgeon talks about Satan's desire to alienate man from God. What Spurgeon says, talking about Satan, he saw what an interest the creator had taken in man and therefore judged that he could grieve him greatly by seducing man from obedience. He perceived that the maker, when he formed the earth, did not rest. When he had made the birds and fishes, he did not rest. When he made the sun, the moon, the stars, he did not rest. But when he had fashioned man, he was so well content that he then took a day of rest and consecrated it forever to be a Sabbath. Thus was God's unresting care for man made manifest. Surely, said the evil one, if I can turn this favored being into an enemy of God, then I will bring dishonor upon the name of the Most High and have my revenge. Therefore, he alighted in the garden and tempted our first parents, thus opening the gate by which sin entered into the world with all its train of woes. I think Spurgeon has his finger on it there. He goes on, Oh, if men could but see the slime of the serpent upon their pleasurable sins, the venom of ass upon their dainty lusts, and the smoke of hell upon their proud and boastful thoughts, surely they would loathe that which they now delight in. If sin connects us with the devil himself, let us flee from it as from a devouring lion. The expression is a word of distestation, this idea of the works of the devil. May it enter into our hearts and make sin horrible to us. That's one of my prayers that God will use his spirit to make sin, what? Horrible to us. That we will detest it. Anytime a person acts in accord with his own will and not the will of God, he is imitating the devil. John Stock kind of sums up John's argument at this point. He says, if the first step to holiness is to recognize the sinfulness of sin, both in its essence as lawlessness and in its diabolical origin. He said, basically, if you understand that sin is wicked and it comes from the devil... The second step is to see its absolute incompatibility with Christ in his sinless person and saving work. So first we see sin 
as coming from the devil and being rebellion against God. And the second thing we see is it's completely incompatible with who Jesus is because this passage tells us he is with what? Without sin. And it is completely incompatible with his saving mission to what? To destroy the works of Satan and to rescue us from sin. The more clearly we grasp these facts, the more incongruous will sin appear and the more determined we shall be to be rid of it. This is the real challenge of the Christian church in America is a low view of sin, a low view of God's holiness, a low view of the person of Jesus, and a low view of what he came to do. And this is why we now, on our national stage, cannot deal with sin at all. We don't know what to do with people who sin. Except set them free to go do it again. And we're now making it law that they can continue in their sin. And that it is now a civil right for certain sins. Certain sins are now a civil right that we cannot dare touch because it's a rights issue. We don't know how to deal with people who don't follow the Constitution. We have lawmakers on both sides of the aisle who I would say, let me back up. We first have to deal with our own sin, don't we? We have to fight the fight with our own sin first. The Bible says we have to get the log out of our own eye so that we can do what? Take the speck out of somebody else's eye. This is why the founders felt that the only proper magistrates for a country like this were Christians. Christians who what? Had dealt with their own sin at the cross of Jesus. Christians who were fighting the fight of sin in their own lives and helping others in the fight of their fight for sin. And when we, when we put magistrates in office who don't know Jesus and don't understand sin, and we then ask them to make sure everyone obeys the law, there's a disconnect. Does that make sense? So we don't have any border laws that we're following anymore. We don't have, we're not following the Constitution anymore. We have our own sin habits that pour out onto the national scene. And we're not able to bring wicked, wicked people to justice and deal with them. So our prisons are pouring over with people. But it all goes back to this whole thing of we don't understand what Jesus did. We don't understand who he is. We don't understand what he did. We don't understand the nature of sin. And we don't understand how destructive it is. So where does it start? Where does it start? It starts with the church, with us getting it right and starting in our own personal lives, dealing with our own sin before a holy God. Now you can read this passage 
in chapter 3, and you can come away with some false doctrine. If you look at verse 6, it says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has ever seen him or known him. And we can come away with the idea that basically Christians should never sin. If we go back to chapter 1, John tells us in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John says, don't say you don't sin because you're making God a liar because you do sin. But in this passage in 3, He's using, again, the present tense verb, which, again, is talking about habitual practice of sin. No one is a believer, John says, who lives a habitual life of sin. Now, it says, we use the words practice here. You know, there were students in my high school that practiced basketball and some that didn't practice basketball. Okay? We had guys on our team with different levels of ability. Some could hit 10 free throws in a row, some could hit seven, some could hit five, some could hit three, some, bless their heart, could hit one. But, They were there practicing to do what? Become better at basketball. There were other students who never got on the court, never practiced it at all. They didn't care about it. Paul's emphasis, John's emphasis here is not that we have sinless perfection. His emphasis is, are we pursuing righteousness? Are we fighting sin? We know we're not going to be 100% perfect on that. And that's why we're told in chapter 2 we have an advocate to go to. And in chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John's view, John says it's really clear. We're going to get to this in just a minute. It's really clear who are the believers and who aren't. Which ones are practicing and which ones are not. But there are people out there who believe that if you work hard enough at it, you can be perfect and not sin. The scripture does not teach that. This passage does not teach that. The story is told of Spurgeon as he was at a railway platform, and a man who knew him came up, excited about what he was reading from Wesley about sinless perfection, and intimating to Spurgeon that he had reached that incandescent state of sinless perfection to which Spurgeon stepped on his toe. And he cursed cursed and he swore and Spurgeon said, I knew you weren't perfect. Sinless perfection happens when we see Jesus. Amen? Amen? 
That's what he tells us here in three. We will be like him when we see him. That's why we're looking forward to seeing him because of what he's done for us and who he is and the fact that one day he will finish the job of completely eradicating our lives of sin. But while we're here, we are to what? Be engaged in the battle. Tim Keller says, and we talked about this a while back, the gospel truth, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Are we getting to that point in our lives where we're realizing that? That we are more flawed by sin than we ever imagined. Even as Christians who are growing in grace, we see more and more layers of our sin coming out. The other truth is, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. Two incredible truths there, right? The sinfulness of man and yet the love of Christ. We have to acknowledge the sinfulness of man. Augustine said, I will now call to mind my past foulness and the corruptness of my soul. Calvin, all I've done has been worth nothing. Imagine that. I'm, an, I'm a miserable creature. My vices have always displeased me. John Bunyan, the one who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, wrote a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It was an autobiography. The Apostle Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. Jonathan Edwards, when I look into my own heart and take a view of my wickedness, it looks like an abyss infinitely deeper than hell. Jesus, in contrast, said, which of you convinces me of sin? No one could put a charge of sin against Jesus. He is the Savior. The encouraging part about this passage is that we're his children if we have put our faith in Christ and repented of our sin. We are his children, imperfect as we are. And the call here in verse 3 is to purify ourselves just as he is pure. Work and fight against sin by the grace he's given you, knowing that he loves you, and make progress toward becoming perfect. You should see progress in your Christian life. It will be slow, it will be up, it will be down, but you should see progress as you move forward in grace. So we talked about sin. The other point is a true child of God does not, does not and cannot live in sin. If you're truly a child of God, you cannot live in habitual sin. You cannot do that. If we look at our passage here, he tells us that we have the seed of God. It says, no one, verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That is great news, isn't it? that we will not be caught in habitual sin. If we find ourselves moving toward habitual sin, we need to ask the question, do I know him? If we're his, he says that will not be the condition that we're in, that we will be moving toward 
grace and holiness in our lives. It's amazing what Jesus did for us in allowing his son to come and to die for us. So the true Christian does not and cannot live in sin because God's seed is in him and he is born of God. You and I have a new nature. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Do we still battle sin? Yes, we do. But there is progress being made and there is a desire to fight it. The real question you have is, do I have a desire to fight sin? If you have no desire to fight sin, if sin is just ran over your life and you're content to live with it, the Spirit of God does not live in you. But if you're fighting, if you're fighting against it, if you're using the Word and prayer and the fellowship of the believers to fight against sin, then there is great hope that you are His. Secondly, we learn in this passage that the children of God and the children of the devil are distinguished by the practice of righteousness. It's real simple. John, John was not trying to figure out who in the flock was, were, were God's. He clearly knew who in that flock were God's because of how they lived. Some lived for righteousness, some did not. The false prophets claimed this great divine revelation, but they were living in sin, but they were claiming to know God. And, and, and John says, do not be deceived. I don't care what great visions they have. If they're living in a habitual life of sin, they don't know me. They never have. They don't know me. Brothers and sisters, we need to fight sin in our own lives because it's part of God's plan to destroy the works of Satan. And because Jesus himself, our brother, is sinless. 75 years ago or more, Winston Churchill delivered his first speech to Parliament on, as Prime Minister of Great Britain. And this was right as the rise of, of Germany was coming into play. And this is what he said in, in the fight they would have to engage against Nazi Germany. But I think... The same type of tenacity we need to develop in our own lives in our fight against sin. He says, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask what is our policy, and I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask me what is our aim? I answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be for without victory, there is no survival. That could very easily be preached by Christ to us. You have been given the victory of my spirit living in you, and it's now time for you to go out and take over those areas in your own life that are under the control of the enemy and help others as well. Bob just finished up a series in Joshua, remember? 
And we had all these different tribes coming into these lands and taking them over. But every one of those people groups had enemies still left in the land. Remember that? And Joshua said, your job is to trust God and to go in there and clean out the rest of those people who were rebellious against God. We would have loved to have said Israel did that. Israel did not do that. They got comfortable. They settled in. They learned to live with the people who were rebels against God. Have you gotten to the point in your own Christian life where you're just comfortable with your sin? You're just comfortable with what's going on? It's just the way you are. Can't change. The Holy Spirit says, I came to make you holy. I have a, I have a, I have a passion for you that's more of holiness than just happiness. Each of us must fight the fight against sin. Real quickly, 1 Samuel 17. Remember the story of David and Goliath? There's a real parallel between Christ and his church. There's a real parallel there. Look at verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. May I say 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to earth and he lived the perfect life. And he was willing to take your sin and my sin on him and die on the cross. And at his shout, it is finished. He cut off Satan's head. And now as believers... We need to be like the Israelites. We need to rise up with a shout and take the battle to the enemy. We need to take the battle to the enemy first in our own lives, fighting and dealing with sin because we have been guaranteed the victory in him. And then to others. And Spurgeon brings us to the close he says, if we want to destroy the works of the devil, our best method is to manifest more and more the Son of God. Preach up Christ and you preach down the devil. All kinds of reforms are good and we are on the side of everything that is pure, honest, temperate, and righteous. Still, the best reformer is the Christ of God. The one medicine for man's mortal sickness is the cross and nothing but the cross. Preach the crucified Savior. Preach the incarnate God. 
Preach Christ full of forgiveness and love, reconciling the world unto himself, and you have applied the best remedy to the sore. Only let it never be forgotten that Jesus destroys the works of darkness by his spirit. It is the spirit of God who puts divine energy into the sacred word of God. When the spirit manifests Christ in a man, the works of darkness are destroyed in that man. When Christ is manifested in a nation, the works of Satan begin to fall in that nation. And in proportion, as the Holy Spirit shall more and more reveal Christ to hearts and consciences, bringing them into obedience to the faith, in that degree shall the works of Satan be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, we have a great message of victory in John 3, 1 John 3. First for our own lives and our own sin. And then a message for the nation. May God give us grace more and more to go where people tr- fear to tread, to proclaim the gospel to those who've never heard that Jesus' work of breaking, destroying the works of Satan may be complete. Father, we come before you. We're grateful that we're your children. We're grateful that we're loved more than we realize and can ever imagine. We're grateful that even though we stumble and sin, that you are breaking the habitual pattern of sin in us who believe. And Father, if there's someone here who acknowledges I really am habitually addicted to sin of every flavor and there is no desire for righteousness in me may they turn and look to Jesus for help and for encouragement and for salvation Father thank you for this very encouraging passage thank you that it's very clear those who are children of God those who are children of Satan Father, may we have pity on those that are children of Satan. May we proclaim to them the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. May we tell them what sin really is. May we tell them who Jesus really is and what he has really done. And may we call them to repent and to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.